Welcome to episode 13 of Car. It's the shopping center special. In this episode, we'll be thinking about shopping centres and asking what alternative functions they might be put to, whether as sites of historic preservation or as the basis for works of art. In his unfinished arcades project, Walter Benjamin believed that a historical study of shopping, focusing on the Parisian arcades of the 19th century, would awaken us to the truth concealed by the dream of capitalism. For most people, however, malls serve a more immediate function. Here, the social and commercial intersect, and spending money becomes a leisure activity. In architectural terms, shopping centres could be described as the apotheosis of consumer capitalism, but they are equally places of youthful subversion and casual deviance, of hanging out. Recent years, however, have been traumatic ones for shopping centres. Breaking news. In Nairobi, Kenya, the search continues for gunmen who opened fire at a popular upscale shopping mall just about seven hours ago at the Westgate Mall. You're looking at images right now of police who... On the 21st of September this year, Islamic militants laid siege to the Westgate shopping center in Nairobi. In choosing a shopping mall, of course, they were passing symbolic judgment on Western consumerism. But while malls as we know them today developed in mid-century America, the most advanced modern examples are flourishing elsewhere. Later in this episode, we'll hear from artist and writer Sophia Almeria, whose work explores the massive social and economic changes taking place in the Gulf, in which malls play a central part. People always complain there's nothing else to do here except go to the mall. So it's become this weird surrogate like town center it has a very important role i think architecturally but also socially as sophia's work suggests malls are increasingly global spaces the same brands the same design values no matter which country you're in but there are some which subvert the trend towards corporate homogenization which have even fostered a sense of local community and culture. In the technocratic, hyper-capitalist world of contemporary malls, the Elephant and Castle shopping centre is something of an anomaly. Rather than high-end fashion boutiques and chain eateries, the centre is home to ethnic restaurants, cheap hardware stores, independent clothes shops, public table tennis tables, a second-hand games exchange, a bingo hall and a religious bookshop. Market stalls selling cheap toys, clothes and fruit and veg spill out from the marble corridors and into the sunken area outside. There's almost a sense of a barter economy here, or at least, of individual human beings actually selling things, rather than simply the avatar outlets of multinational brands. Instead of the scrupulously manicured shopping centre experience you might expect, the elephant has a refreshingly informal atmosphere. And personally, I like it. But it's a controversial structure, and the threat of demolition has been hanging over it for years. Although some people can't wait to see it go, 
Opinion remains divided. Everything is damaged. It's like a ruin. They try to keep it a little bit, but it's still... I think the best is to just put it down and make another thing. It's thriving. And it's so sad to read in this weekend's Telegraph that this shopping centre you know, is, is an empty failure. It's utter nonsense. The fact that it's often written off as a civic embarrassment says something about our expectations about shopping centres. We want them to bring us a shiny, idealised future, but the elephant feels trapped in the past. Islam is a waiter at the Castle Tandoori restaurant. Our food is Bangladeshi foods. That's very good quality and this, everything is very good. And this everyday buffet as well. So normally non-vegetarian 5.995, vegetarian 5.95. And this free drink, so and Coke and lemonade. Ah, uh, 33 years. That's the, the yeah. same. same owner, same everything, this family business. With its ornamental ferns, arched booths, and peppermint green curtains, it's as if this restaurant has been intentionally preserved, like a room at the VNA dedicated to the gastronomic decor of the mid 70s. Has the decor, has like the decoration of this place changed much? And the same decoration for like, when it started. The same decoration and everything is in, nothing to change at the moment. Mm. <laughs> and many of the goods sold here also have an air of the antique. This one, this four that we are selling a long, long time. Yeah. Really? Because it's got like Mario, which is a yeah, really old Mario, game. Mario, yeah. what's it called? Pac-Man, Super Draw, like, like antique games. Why is it so surprising to encounter a sense of history in a shopping centre? Perhaps it's because shopping, for all its phenomenological effects, is essentially a cycle of obliteration and replenishment, of desirable objects endlessly produced and consumed. Malls don't simply contain valuable objects, but actively shape our encounters towards aspirational ends. We want them to be as box-fresh as the products on display, while everything outdated, last season, second-hand, is discreetly escorted off-premises. The elephant, however, is as much a museum as a mall. I was around when it was first built. I was nine years old, so it's like grown up with me. And I used to come and drink here, socialise here, shop here when I was a youngster. And now I'm back and it hasn't changed <laughs> at all. Some say it has failed as a shopping centre, but that depends on your definition of success. My name's Sharon Goldin. Um, I'm the centre manager for the St Ogwin Group, uh, for the Elephant Castle Inn in particular. And my role is to manage the building, maintain it, make sure it's a safe environment for my customers. Yeah, I could quite honestly, hand on heart, say that this is not a destination shopping centre. However, it, it serves the purpose, and that's like a market come community, yeah. I'll return to this idea of community later. It's an ambiguous concept, but for me it's one of the qualities which sets the elephant apart. But first, some historical context. Built in 1965, the elephant was the first of its kind in Europe. At the time, the idea of a fully pedestrianised indoor shopping complex was revolutionary. 
huge faith was invested in the structure, which, it was hoped, would revitalise a blitzed-ravaged area of South London. Like many of the goods that were eventually sold there, the mall concept was itself an American import. The Austrian-born architect Victor Gruen is often described as the father of the shopping mall. In the mid-50s he developed highly integrated shopping schemes, complete with plazas and parks, where pedestrians took priority over vehicles. The first mall he built was Midtown Plaza in Rochester. As in most American cities, the tendency here in recent years was a withdrawal from the central core to the surrounding suburbs. People first, then business, headed for the open spaces. Ten acres of renewal, and that hole in the ground seemed to stay there forever. The girders went, the framework for a new 18-story office building and hotel. The framework for a new retail complex centered about a new root air-conditioned marketplace, the size of a football field. A former socialist, Gruen's original intention was to encourage social cohesion around the act of shopping. But businesses quickly recognized that these utopian ideals could be commercially beneficial. In a competitive market, a sense of place could boost consumer loyalty, which in turn would maximize profits. Quality people in quality jobs, earning quality incomes, buy quality merchandise. Towards the end of his career, Gruen said, I am often called the father of the shopping mall. I would like to take this opportunity to disclaim paternity once and for all. I refused to pay alimony to those bastard developments. They destroyed our cities. Built before the disillusionment could set in, the Elephant and Castle dates from a moment of optimism. Here is an artist's impression of the shopping centre when it was still on the drawing board. I met local historian and campaigner Richard Reynolds in Jenny's Cafe, where he explained the pioneering vision for the centre. A strong advocate of the elephant's preservation, he recognises its historical significance. What we're looking at here is a, a, a crayon drawing, a vista of the interior of the marketing brochure for the shopping centre. And we've got um, water features, tropical plants, umbrellas with people supping their 1950s coffees. And it's, it's buzzing, albeit everyone looks like they're wearing a very thick raincoat. And the caption says, the new shopping centre in Elephant Castle is the largest and most ambitious shopping venture ever to be embarked upon in London. In design, vision, planning terms, it represents an entirely new approach to retailing, setting standards for the 1960s. It will revolutionise shopping concepts throughout Britain. And it did, um, although it wasn't as successful as they hoped. Shopping centres trade on the mirage of idealised living. And looking at this old drawing with Richard, I'm struck by how closely the original plan for the building resembles the malls of today. Just like in the Westfield centres, the design places great emphasis on glass, as if the ability to visually possess everything empowers the consumer. There's an air of social sophistication too, 
in the casual way the customers appear to be roaming. These original design features have a different resonance today. Well, we're standing outside uh, uh, yet another independent hair salon, London's Hair Fashion. Um, embossed black and white lettering at the top with a vintage phone number and at the side a beautiful piece of ribbed marble. It could be 1965. Although there's always a risk of fetishising historical details, there's a serious point to this. As well as preserving something of historical relevance and local character, as well as having their own intrinsic appeal, these vintage design features point towards the historical amnesia that most shopping environments engender. They are startling because they are real. Most malls, however, are composed entirely of simulacra, of faux vintage shop hoardings and plastic trees. As theorists such as Mark Auger and Zygmunt Bauman argue, shopping centres are places that actively demolish all sense of local character tending ever more towards a homogenous global norm. I call that Malmentia. Sophia Almeria. You know, it's weird actually because for some reason the US doesn't have the same, at least in suburban malls, doesn't have the same sort of outlets. But UK, all over Europe, all over Middle East, all over Asia, I've, it's the same places. You know, you have the Zara and your Lush and your Foot Locker, etc., etc. And these things do give you a real sense of confusion. This moment of transition, the jolt which occurs when the shopper passes from the outside in, is crucial to understanding the manipulative power shopping centres can and do have. The spatial confusion we feel is intentional and related perhaps to the temporal confusion that is manufactured in casinos in LA, which have no natural light and no clocks on the walls. As Zygmunt Bauman argues in Liquid Modernity, the more seductive the temptations beckoning from the shopping mall displays, the deeper the sense of impoverished reality, the more overwhelming becomes the desire to taste, if only for a fleeting moment, the bliss of choosing. For Sophia Almeria, this moment of entrance and entrancement reveals something about the abrupt social transitions and temporal shifts of an entire region. Based in Doha, Sophia has been central in establishing Gulf Futurism, an evolving series of ideas which explores how futuristic fantasies developed in the West are being realised in the present in the oil-rich countries of the Gulf. Over Skype, I asked Sophia to read a short essay she wrote in which, drawing on the work of Victor Gruen, she explains the role of shopping centres in the Gulf, home to some of the most elaborate and lavishly decorated malls in the world. The first mall in Doha, Qatar, was called appropriately enough, the mall. The mall's layout conforms to the blueprint of malls the world over. There are no outward-facing windows against which one could measure geographic location. Instead, only skylights to allow in calming natural light. Aside from the call to prayer, the soundtrack consists of non-offensive music tinkling through the temperature-controlled air. Time slows, and the soothing effects of the Gruen transfer set in. To clarify, 
In shopping mall design, the Gruen transfer is the moment when consumers enter a shopping mall and, surrounded by an intentionally confusing layout, lose track of their original intentions. Consumers respond to scripted disorientation cues in the environment. I should mention that Victor Gruen disavowed such manipulative techniques, but the idea was too powerful and too lucrative to be kept in two dimensions. And so the mall, both in concept and design, is a spatial drug rendering the person who has entered it, rather than taken it, helpless and impressionable in the face of desire. Aside from forgetting what it was you came for, the transfer is marked by a slower walking pace. So imagine, if you will, the following person milling the mall. An 18-year-old girl wearing a black abaya with her shayla thrown up over her face. She is the beautiful daughter of a woman who at 18 wore bright calico jalebias with a gold nose ring and oiled braids displayed in the sun. In sharp contrast to her mother's liberty to roam, this modern daughter is only free to move within the hamster ball of the mall. When she wants to travel, she changes the photographic wallpaper in her bedroom from alpine meadow to a tropical beach. And so, born into the consumerist pleasure land of shopping festivals and year-round tenzilat, she spends erratically. Wedding season arrives, and with it, her urge to refresh herself kicks into overdrive. She begins planning her power princess transformations of color-coordinated fantasy. She chooses a theme for each invitation, matching her contact lenses with her poof, with her slippers, with her bedazzled BB cover. Her dresses are as elaborate as a carnival float. She chooses turquoise satin and feathers and orange tulle and gold bangles and leopard lycra and minx nails, all the while nursing the hope that soon she'll be on the dais wearing her own holographic glitter wedding dress nestled in a fanfare of styrofoam swans. The cost of these mall-fed fantasies has caused a pandemic in Qatar. Since the first mall opened, the country has accrued an outrageous and unpayable personal debt, exacerbated by the urban legend that someday the emir will bail us all out. Sophia's text suggests that by shaping the ways in which women are able to move and express themselves, malls in turn might have a wider impact on society. But the words society and community are rarely associated with shopping itself, which is often described as an individual pastime, a string of sensations which can be experienced only subjectively, as Bauman puts it. In the elephant, that solipsistic model doesn't quite hold true. The quote-unquote failure of its retail propositions has created cultural and community spaces that might not otherwise have existed. Earlier this year, a band called Howlround played a gig at La Bodeguita Cafe as part of the offshore pavilion project organised by Bella Marin. Looping old tapes salvaged from BBC archives this hauntological music was an oddly appropriate intervention for a building whose preservative qualities ironically increased the likelihood of its eventual demolition.
On the surface, at least, the elephant appears obsolete. Betamax, when the rest of the world is upgraded to Blu-ray. But there are important differences between a building's intended function and the way in which it is actually used. Enclosed, slightly tatty, but filled with activity, the elephant could be thought of as a model, a kind of microcosm of how commercial centres might evolve into civic ones. I think a lot of what we see here is not by design, it's by a sense of, dare I say it, negligence, but that's been a good thing. And, and again, to bring it back to a metaphor of gardening, St Modwin are a kind of naturalistic gardener, aren't they? They're quite hands-off, to extend the metaphor, they're organic. They've got some wild patches, whereas unfortunately the, the, the more iconic shopping centres of the 21st century are manicured to the point of sterility. Eva Sajevic is a local artist who's done several projects in and around the centre. People not, don't necessarily live in the area but come here because of culture, because there's a lot of Latino American cultural but also produce uh, around here so people come to shop for that and to socialize and to dance. <laughs> people do spend money here of course but they don't necessarily come here to spend money. It's a subtle shift but it changes the whole logic of the shopping center. It's kind of a resilience isn't it? Economy of resilience and invention. Hopefully this could be something that could show a model, almost, for how to be in the future. The failure of the retail ambition here has created vibrant community spaces. This is precisely what Mary Portas is recommending for the future of our high street. She recognises that with the internet, the density of retail space is unnecessary, that people are going to take it door to door or they'll just pop in and collect it from a retailer. They don't need to linger there so long. And so it makes space for community activities and, and, and residential activity in spaces where there traditionally wasn't room. And that's, that's really exciting. As the UK economy crawls out of recession, consumerism has been spoken of as a kind of byword for national duty. Rather than individual privilege, the reward of salaried work, spending money, being an active consumer, has been raised to an obligation, the need to go out and buy stuff in order to keep this country afloat. So observing the ways in which we shop might, after all, reveal something about how our national priorities intersect with our personal ones. Arguably, the elephant, with its highly developed social structure, its web of interlinked and international communities, points the way to an alternative if less glamorous future. Places like Chunking Mansions or the way that the old souk used to be here at Sukwagaf are organic, tech, urban locales of trade and, and activity and traffic. And so I think that those places are in a weird way more futuristic, not even in a weird way, they are more futuristic than the places that overtly look futuristic like the giant aquarium and the Dubai Mall and you know these sorts of things. Um, because I think that those places are a harbinger of what more of the world is going to look like, especially as 
the population surges upwards towards 10 billion, more of the world is going to look like places like Hong Kong. I wonder what Victor Gruen would have made of the elephant. In its own inadvertent way, perhaps it has realized the utopian dream of social integration that was a guiding principle of his first designs. That's not to say the elephant can't feel bleak at times and a little oppressive, but there is something remarkable about the way it has been repurposed by demographics as seemingly polarized as artists and market traders. By day, the elephant's corridors echo with the small dry thocks of table tennis balls being bashed back and forth. Colombian sambas waft through the doors of a Spanish-speaking restaurant, and at regular intervals throughout the day, the steps to the bingo hall are thronged with grey-haired ladies. These communities are small, and their existence here is precarious. Just over the road, the final residents of the Haygate estate have been moved on, and the buildings, one by one, are steadily being demolished. It seems inevitable that the shopping centre too will also be torn down. But for the time being, at least, it's a place where people gather and sometimes shop. You've been listening to Car. Listen to previous episodes at listen to car.co.uk